And so we're going to start in just a minute or two, but I wanted to update you about our Sangha, which will continue. And also, at this point, the plan is to include one Sunday a month that will be live in Terrytown. And for those of you who came to our gathering, it will be at the same house, at Ellen's house. And I'll keep you posted about that. And I'd like to assure all of you that we're one Sangha. And if you can't make the in-person um, meetings, it doesn't make you less a part of our Sangha. And also, if you happen to live in New York City, please know that I'm happy to pick you up at the train and bring you to this meeting place. And I will keep you posted about that. So don't panic. Everything will continue with an addition for people who live around here. So um, uh, I was thinking in, in light of the incredible heat and the floods in Germany and the drought in the western part of the United States and, and, and our general suffering. Someone brought up pain on uh, Wednesday that it would be very good to go right into, go right into that. And um, I am thinking to share with you that one thing that happens, it has happened to me, and see if you can relate to it, no pressure. When something happens that causes me great pain, that has caused me pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain or some event in my life, that has frightened me and made my life contract. I instantly go into a state that I think of a, a movie from 1960 um, about time travel, a time machine, H.G. Wells. And, and just relax for a moment. I'll tell you just in a moment or two what the plot of this book and the later this film was. There was a Victorian English gentleman who invented time machine. I'm telling the short version and the Dharma version. And he showed up at a dinner with his friends and talked about his this extraordinary invention. And they were at Oxford or somewhere. And and he was so bedraggled and so worn that they couldn't help but of course they'd offer him a drink. And, a seat. and he had a tale to tell. 
that he traveled far into the future, far into the future, and and landed in a place. It's our place, our earth. And at that point in time, the world was divided into two. There were the Eloys and the Morlocks. And the Eloys were, in the movie, they're blonde, they're all blonde, and, and they're completely vapid, completely clueless. And they live on fruit, and they're vegetarian, and they know nothing about suffering, nothing about anything. They just kind of lounge around looking blonde and beautiful in a vapid way. And the other half of the population, which I in intensely identified with were called the Morlocks. And the Morlocks really understood suffering. The Morlocks lived underground and they did all the work and they were bitter and they were burdened with all kinds of heavy karma. The Eloi and the Morlocks. And the Morlocks hated the Eloi to the point of skipping ahead, where, where the Victorian gentleman who landed among the Eloi and saved the life of one Eloi woman called Wima, or some incredibly stupid and vapid name, had to flee. How did he escape? How did he escape this world that we live in where the minute you're suffering, you feel, I know that you share this feeling or you have before you achieved enlightenment, where you look around, you look around you and all you see are these vapid Eloys. And you look at people and you think, you are clueless. You, you have no idea what suffering will come or what age will bring or how your children will turn out. You don't know. I know. I'm a Morlock. How do we escape the sense of separation that comes with pain? How do we escape this feeling of suffering, these stories of suffering that cut us off, that separate us from a feeling of life, of being fully part of it? And in the movie, the secret was time travel, time travel. And I realized that another way to think of time travel is bringing a sense of spaciousness into our lives, a, a long view, a broad view, a deeper view. And, you know, as it happened, one of my friends here, uh, Ruth Kent, 
reminded me of this marvelous project that used to fascinate me, the creation and still does of by Stuart Rand and other people and Brian Eno, he tells me of something called the clock of the long now. It's the invention of a clock that ticks once a year, once a year. And it greatly expands our sense of the present. And of course, this spacious view was part of Buddhism and its sense of eons and eons that it would that we have together to awaken how relaxing. And even in our culture, the the clock of the long now people included this marvelous story from Oxford University, where our Victorian gentleman was from. And, and it's a story I heard my daughter study there and, and have a partner who was a fellow there and now works there. And I always enjoyed going to these vast dining halls with these big timber ceilings, great big oak timbers. And the story, the legend that's based in truth is that these timbers would have to be replaced once every 500 years or so. What my daughter was someone who took Harry Potter to heart. So she really delighted in being in this medieval atmosphere. And this is the truth, in one of the colleges, they're all separate colleges, new college, there were timbers that were infested with beetles and they didn't know what to do. How can we replace these ancient timbers? Long story short, there are different versions of it. A forester knocked at the door, great big doors, of course, that Oak trees had been allotted in the forest that was to provide this college with timbers. Oak trees were planted to be ready in 500 years when the timbers needed to be replaced. So the point of this story is not just a shaggy dog story, is what if we began to see ourselves in a different light? Instead of seeing ourselves as completely cut off, independent, struggling to fix ourselves and fix our suffering, we relaxed and took our place in a greater whole, in a greater whole. When a small group of us had a chance to get together to meditate, we experimented with playing different parts in a larger body. And someone said, oh, I can be a bag. I can be a bag. 
that even if things seem overwhelming, you can relax for a moment and think of yourself as a tiny part, or not so tiny, but part of a greater and more spacious whole. And, and it's true. It's quite true that we are thinking that, that there's so many pressing problems, so many frightening things. But what if right now we just considered that there's more space and more time, even in the face of suffering? then we allow ourselves to know. And how do we touch it again and again and again? I talk about presence, just inviting ourselves to come back to the body, to the inner experience as a gateway to sensing presence. And is something that I mean quite literally, that we're meant to be part of something large. And Ken also reminded me, it's Kent Appreciation Day, that um, the film director, Roberto Rossellini, he described St. Francis as I paraphrase, but St. Francis always played the fool, the clown, because he knew, Rosalini said, that when you're humble, when you're rock bottom humble, and you admit your limitation, you can face anything. And your perspective on the universe shifts so that when I dare to speak to you, I often have a little prayer like, let something true come through this fool. If you don't seek self-perfection, but instead seek to open to a larger presence, a greater experience of life, just for a moment. Something shifts, something shifts. And you're no longer a Morlock or an Eloy, but something greater part of something greater. So, so let's sit together. And take a comfortable seat. And let your back be straight, as, as straight as you can comfortably have your back be. And let your head rest easily on your neck. And just notice how it feels 
to be here today. Let everything be just as it is. Exactly like this, you might feel tired or full of energy. You might feel the weight of gravity. Let it be felt. And notice that your attention can go to places of tension or, or pain. And begin to relax them just a bit. Let everything happen just as it happens, thinking, sensing, picturing, being distracted. Let it happen without comment. And when you notice that you're taken, that the attention is taken, gently come back again to the body, to the sensation of sitting here. And notice that when you make this movement, of remembering, of coming home to sensation, you also open to presence. And notice how alive 
you are, how much vibrancy there is inside you. Sensitivity, receptivity. Beginning to remember that you're made to feel present. And see that when you drift, this is perfectly natural. And that you can come back again and be welcomed by presence. Rest in stillness, in a presence that sees without comment, that receives you with kindness, spaciousness.
and notice when you come home to presence, there's another feeling sometimes, a spaciousness, a brightness, a joy. Letting yourself rest in presence, ungripping the fist of thought, just sensing, just allowing.
And notice that no matter what you're thinking, you can gently come back to sensation and to presence. Notice as we become more still that presence wishes to communicate with you, not words, but belonging, acceptance, witness.
notice as you relax and open, you may feel less alone. Thank you for your practice and your presence. And if you have comments or observations or questions about practice, keeping it to practice, we'd love to hear your voices. And you don't have to raise your hand. Please just speak. Hi, Tracy. Hi. 
um, having a lot of fear come up in my practice over the last couple of weeks. Um, I think some of it's just about what's going on in the world, um, especially around climate change and, um, and politics. And um, I just find that it causes, and then more at micro levels as well, you know, as I interact I live in a, a condominium community and I interact with people here and there's a pool and um, there are people who I feel are, you know, have very different values and views that I do. And that brings up fear and aversion and it makes me want to cling more to um, the things that, that feel safe and align with my own values. And, um, but it leads to a lot of feeling of separateness of just feeling separate and different and, um, and that there aren't enough of us <laughs> um, and what's going to happen. And, and, and like letting the, I, I think I'm babbling a little bit, but I'm also wondering, you know, we talk about letting the feelings in, but when, when do the feelings become rumination and, um, and become not helpful. I, I think that was a little unclear, but just struggling with hey. feelings of fear and separation and, um, and being taken down a little bit. Right. And I'd like to be by them. Yeah, a really good question. And, and I mean, universal question and a really powerful practice for all of us for fear or any strong emotion is to feel it in the body as sensation. And so you're moving from the story, the thinking into the sensation of fear. And we open to that sensation. And we feel, we let it be all that it is. You can even say, let this fear show itself or be all that it is. And so that the seeing that we cultivate, this attention that's also the sensation of being present to these sensations is really being present for this, the rawness, the vulnerability, the not knowing that's a big piece of it I'm not I don't know how this is going to turn out so you're witnessing all that with exquisite kindness and it's almost I've heard it described heart rock has described it is mindful prayer you can even you can even witness yourself saying help me Help me. I'm so frightened. And without like a picture or an idea of Kuan Yin or God or any, like without judging yourself for doing something abstract or that you don't believe in, just let yourself fully, fully make this most human of expressions. Help me. I'm so frightened. 
and at the same time notice that when you do that mindfully, it also takes you deeply inside, very deeply present to yourself in this most human state of not knowing or being frightened. And when you do this duty with full mindful kindness and compassion, sometimes, sometimes it gives way to this wonderful compassion that's also inside you. You can have a moment. This is a practice of self-observation, of seeing ourselves at our most human, in our pain, in our fear, offering that to be seen by an attention that doesn't comment, that's kind. And at moments when we do this, we go deeply inside, we let that be expressed. We can suddenly experience ourselves as completely lovable, completely acceptable, and not at all separate from life. And does it magically um, solve the flooding in Germany or the drought? No, it doesn't. But it brings us for a moment and more and more as we practice into a state of belonging to life. We're present. So that we don't know what will come. But that sense of separation that causes so much suffering has disappeared. And it's not anymore, you know, stupid Eloise, poor Morlocks. For a moment, you're just a human being in a living world, and you're not alone. You remember that you're surrounded and full of forces that help and support. You're not just at the mercy of your thoughts. Does does that make sense? It it does make sense. It's not easy. Um, And I do often, often forget the, um, the kindness and the compassion peace and and that that piece about asking for help I've heard that said in different ways and I I don't know why it's so hard to remember um when I'm sitting when you say it I'm like oh yeah of course (laughs) yeah that would be helpful I know that um but that sati or that memory um piece seems hard Yeah, and that's what, it's a practice. It's a practice remembering. And for all of us, 
uh, yeah, and it's interesting for all of us to, like, there's a tendency for this kind of judgment to creep in, like, oh, no, there I go again, or I forgot, or I'm contracted, or, um, you know, I'm back to us and them, or, but notice, take that as an observation, something interesting to observe. And, and the, you know, the biggest help that for all of us is to realize that it's not just your pain, your fear, it's the human fear, the human pain, the human uncertainty. So that when we're observing ourselves and you catch yourself in the act, or I catch myself in the act of separating myself from the rest of humanity, I see that with a new interest and compassion. So take the whole thing as your practice. All of us, I'm speaking to duty, and all of us, the forgetting and the remembering. Something worthy of our interest and our compassion. It's so interesting the way contract and make ourselves these like embattled little fortresses and it isn't it interesting that we do that and then that something in us remembers how to come back to presence for a moment it's all interesting and all worthy of compassion Thank you so much. Um, from the point of view of practice, it can also seem so interesting that we expect ourselves never to suffer. Or there's this implicit idea that we should protect and perfect and streamline our lives. So as if suffering is, means that we did something wrong. It's a flaw or a mistake. But what if we began to see that it's just the opposite, that Rumi would talk about our allotted suffering, or that each of us is allotted, as though it's a gift that it's this, that is our ticket to understanding. to belonging.
because it's just that suffering that's going to make me stop clinging to separation. Or, or it could. Could you elaborate more on that last comment of how suffering, I wrote it down because it can help you stop clinging to separation. Uh, well, because um, when we're suffering, uh, there are a couple of different senses and more than a couple, but a couple that come to mind in our last few moments that, um, that in the first place, um, when pain is present or fear is present or some condition like sickness or aging or worrying about death or one of those things is present, it's exactly then. It's like, oh, I dimly remember hearing something about that from the Buddha and it doesn't have to be the Buddha. I dimly recall that this is a universal condition. And for all my anti-aging products, I have not fended it off. That it it in you know the war is lost. I am joining humanity in that sense. And also sometimes when we suffer we get to a point where we're willing to just be fools. We get to a point where our suffering is so great that that, that kind of pretense or conceit that we have, that we can solve it, we can fix it, we just throw up our hands, figuratively or literally, and say, I can't do this. I, I can't do it alone. I can't do it at all. And I'm going instead to just sit and breathe and be present. And I love, uh, I heard this from a lecture I listened to about Shakespeare, that in his age, fool meant baby meant infant. I've said this before, but forgive me for repeating it so that like in King Lear, when he says, my poor fool is dead, he means his jester, but also his beloved daughter, his baby. And when someone like St. Francis or anyone in the, in with a sincere surge, thinks of themselves as a fool. They're giving themselves permission to be a baby. Who doesn't know? And from the light of the long now, 
the big clock, the eternity that's described in Tibetan Buddhism, not just one, but infinite eternities in every other great tradition. We're all just babies. We're babies. And that's immensely comforting. We can be babies together and and seek to open and be present and be part of this life. But we're liberated from the false burden of figuring it all out by ourselves. And suffering teaches us that sooner or later. And the other thing about babies is that they're free to be responsive. And, you know, they don't just sit there like stones. And they respond. And so do we. And we remember that when we sit, when we come back to presence, you can feel your heart, your, your perceptions, your breath, impressions, you're innately responsive, innately compassionate. That's what compassion is. The, Buddha's definition of compassion is the quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. And also in the face of joy, beauty, love. that maybe, just maybe, it's enough to spend our lives being responsive, seeking to awaken from our various trances and being responsive. what presents itself.
unless someone else would like to speak, we could end with a little bit of metta, um, loving kindness practice. If you'd like to take your seat and let your eyes close and let yourself sense yourself and have a feeling of gratitude and kindness for yourself, for your practice. Thank you for showing up and doing this practice. For your basic good-heartedness and willingness. And then without pushing or, you know, striving, just let yourself open, be porous. Thinking especially today of all who suffer. Thinking of people in Germany and Belgium, Western Europe, who just suddenly lost everything. People in the West, in the States, who are enduring drought and extraordinary heat. And every other place in the world where people are suffering from, from drought, from climate, from illness, from poverty, And include yourself in this, offering kindness and compassion for your own fear and doubt and heartache about things in your life, physical things, life things, relationship things. Just noticing how it feels as you offer the wishes, may you be safe and protected from harm and danger inside and outside, all kinds, physical, emotional, all kinds. May you find refuge and resources, all kinds, food and water and friendship and a community, a place to go, to belong. And may all these beings find a way to be well, as well as they can be. And may all the 
of these beings, all of them finding shelter and food and everything they need, ultimately be free. May all of us, without exception, in all worlds, here and beyond, known and unknown, be free in all ways. Thank you so much for, I appreciate all of you so much for coming and take good care of yourselves and I'll see you next time, Wednesday or Sunday. Bye-bye. <laughs>